Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, one and all, and welcome to Book Off, the literary podcast with a difference. I'm Joe Haddo, and it's a pleasure to have you with us. If you're a new listener, welcome. And if you're returning, well, thank you. And thanks for all your support for the podcast. Uh, So far in Series 6, we've had Richard Osman and Anthony Horowitz. We've had John Connolly and Sarah Moss. And today we've got two more fabulous guests. This was recorded uh, a few weeks ago before the author Douglas Stewart found out that he'd been shortlisted for the Booker Prize. Not only longlisted, but shortlisted. So we talk a bit about the longlisting, but actually it's just been announced that he is through to the final six books on the Booker Prize shortlist, which is amazing. As ever, we'd love your help in spreading the word of Book Off. So if you are listening via Apple Podcasts on your iPhone with the purple icon, uh, you can leave a review and you can rate us uh, by clicking the stars. So if you have a few moments to do that, we'd greatly appreciate it. And do follow us on all the social medias if you're that way inclined. We are at Odoo Book Off on all channels. Anyway, enough of this nattering. On with the podcast. As ever, I'm joined by two fabulous authors who'll be going head-to-head in a war of the words a little later on in the book-off. My first guest is a poet, novelist and short story writer. She is the third modern macker, the Scottish Poet Laureate and a professor of creative writing at Newcastle University. Here to tell us about her latest book, The Lamp Lighter, is Jackie Kay. Hello, welcome to you. Hello, hello. Nice to be here. Hello, hello. Lovely to have you with us, Jackie. Uh, And also joining us is a debut novelist whose new book, Shuggy Bay, has been hitting the literary headlines, not least because of being long-listed for the Booker Prize, no less. Here to tell us more about that book is Douglas Stewart. Hello. Hello, Joe. Thanks for having me. My absolute pleasure. Thank you for taking the time. It's uh, it's great to have you both with us. So first, I just want to see how you are, Douglas, because uh, there's been an awful lot of attention around you the last couple of weeks and you're probably quite exhausted aren't you? Uh, uh, it has been uh, really wonderful I mean I couldn't have asked for a better homecoming for Shuggy Bain but it's definitely as a writer you, I think you're just inherently a solitary person and quite a private person and so to be longlisted for the booker and then to see my big ugly mug on the front of the Scotsman is quite a lot <laughs> uh, so <laughs> I think I scared some wains over their breakfast that morning but um uh, it's it's great. I'm really grateful for it, but uh, yeah, it can be a little it can be a little 
much. I'm tired. Yes, I imagine you are. And that you raise an interesting point and one that comes around quite a lot when I'm talking to authors. Um, and that is that, you know, a lot of authors are, are very used to working at home alone and being in their own space and creative head. And then, you know, once a book is out and you have to sort of go and do the, the promo part, it, it, it feels very weird for some authors to, to be going and doing that that public side of things how, how how is it for you Jackie when you have to go and do events do you sort of as a poet I suppose you're sort of used to the performance element of it are you yeah I mean I think we poets are used to being peripatetic and being on the road packing up our bags and traveling with our wares <laughs> and um, <laughs> we're even so used to it that we call readings gigs you know we meet each other on the road and say done any good gigs recently Yes, Milton Keynes <laughs> Central Library. <laughs> Which it well, it's basically like Wembley, isn't it? Milton Keynes Central Library. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's like selling out the O2. Um, <laughs> and have you been doing many events recently? Obviously, very much doubt in person, but have you gone virtual, Jackie? Have you been sort of uh, uh, yeah. doing poetry readings and stuff? Yeah, yeah I've been doing my own programme called Macker to Macker. Um, which is a 15-episode series of a mixture of poetry and music. And I've been doing them from my very own living room every Thursday. Uh, so the last one was just last week. And um, I've had some amazing guests on. Peggy Seeger, Val McDermott, Imtiaz Darker, all sorts of different people. Um, and I've had three rotating singers, the black Scottish jazz singer Suzanne Bonner, Claire Brown and Catherine Philpott. So... It's just been really fantastic to do those. A bit nerve-wracking just coming down your own <laughs> stairs and turning up in your living room every Thursday. <laughs> I, I get myself really quite wound up for them and then have to appear relaxed. And also you have to trust that there is an audience out there. I mean, they have been being watched by thousands of people, but it's hard to believe that in your standing in your own living room. So you've got to kind of, you feel a bit deluded. So it's been, it's been, it's been good fun doing them. Well, what a what brilliant creative thing to to have done in this strange old time. And of course, you need to you need to finish the series whenever it is with Paul McCartney, don't you? The ultimate macker. <laughs> it's a different it's a different spelling of the word macker for the Paul McCartney, so it wouldn't work. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's a shame. It, it verbally it works, but written down, but, no, he's yeah, ruined it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And Douglas, what have you been up to apart from obviously doing lots of interviews and press around the book over the last few months? Have you have you been creative? Have you been sort of working and finding this a, a good time for writers? Yeah, I think I've found it actually mostly a mixed time. I think whenever I've been able to tamp down my anxiety, uh, what's been happening in the world, I've actually found it quite a good thing to be stuck at home and to be able to focus on my writing. Because uh, Shuggy Bane is my debut novel, I don't really have much to compare it with in terms of how you connect with readers. I did one uh, sort of live reading here in New York at McNally Jackson, which was phenomenal. And then the world sort of shut down. Um, But the upside of that has been just sort of how innovative and resourceful so many booksellers and festival organizers have been and even just in the last week I've been in Edinburgh I've been in Ireland I was in Chicago I was on the radio with Joe Wiley which was phenomenal and the ability to do that as Jackie says while you're sort of in your pajamas in your own front room is really quite miraculous (laughs) yeah it is isn't it it is (laughs) did I say pajamas (laughs) (laughs) I'm pretty sure he added that in Jackie (laughs) yeah um (laughs) I was speaking with um, 
Ian Rankin, who's a, a, one of our other guests on this series, and he was sort of saying the same thing, really, when it comes to virtual festivals or events and how, yes, it's it's not... We're not used to it, so, you know, it's not as good as being in person at a festival or at an event. Yet, he was sort of arguing that, but anyone can watch it. So it's not just that it's happening in Edinburgh, therefore people from the local area are going to be in the audience. What you're actually getting is a global audience, isn't it? You know, and, and like you were saying, Douglas, you've you've travelled the world in the last couple of weeks without actually having to, to leave, which is pretty amazing. It's been phenomenal and I've had people sort of travel with me. I mean, actually, it was the past couple of days, Joe, and just to have people who I met in Chicago say, oh, I'll come to Edinburgh, as nice as that, and it has just been phenomenal. I want to talk about these two books then. Jackie, if I could talk to you about The Lamplighter first, because it was first produced as a play, wasn't it? Um, Originally broadcast in 2007, I think? Yeah, that's right. It's an incredible book and... When I got it, I thought, oh, lovely short book. How nice. You know, I love just t- tucking into 80-something pages. Um, and it's, it is a, it's a play text, but it reads a bit like a poem in places to me. Can you tell us just a little bit about where this idea, this concept came from? Well, I think of it as a kind of a poem, um, an epic poem, in the sense that it tells a big, it's got a big narrative structure and it tells the story of four different women um, experience of slavery and one man who's like the kind of shipping forecast of, 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 of slavery. And I was really interested in trying to uh, create these particular characters. The producer of the play, the radio play, uh, approached me and asked me to write this. She'd done a lot of res- original research and, and I said, well, no, because I'd already written about slavery and I didn't want to get kind of pigeonholed. And uh, and then she sent me a lot of her original research and, and I read it and I realised that I, I knew nothing really. Um, compared to what I thought I knew, and so so I started writing um, these characters, and they just they just kind of rose out of me, and I felt a real sense of fury writing them, but also indignation and uh, upset in the way that you often do when you're creating characters; they come very close to you. And Douglas will understand this in that sense. Time makes no difference at all; that the, the characters come very close to you, and they they feel like they're in your house. There's one part that I wrote for the the girl who's in the fort before she's sold as a slave, which is meant to be really terrifying. And Pam Fraser Solomon read it and said it wasn't frightening enough. And she said, what frightens you in your in your house? And I said, well, I'm fr- frightened of my cellar. It's a bit embarrassed to tell her this. But she said, she said, well, go and make yourself stand in your cellar for 40 minutes and don't move. So, so I did this and then I came back and wrote that character's voice again. I was really shaken up, but anyway, um, oh, wow. I think I think you put yourself through different things to to try and create an atmosphere and to create a character's journey, and you go on that journey with them, and so sometimes you can be scared, upset, crying, laughing, and doing all of these things with them, which is what kind of often gives people the impression that writers are slightly mad, and to some extent we are, <laughs> because we're living in two worlds at once, you know, the world of our characters and the world that we live in. But now everybody's doing that. We're living in virtual worlds and actual worlds and we're all kind of used to these these two, the, the kind of division between different worlds. You say at the, the beginning of the book in the foreword that the slave trade is not black history to be shoved into a ghetto, forgotten about, but rather it's, you know, it's the history of the world. This is obviously something that is very important 
needs to be talked about. Is it what made you want to write The Lamplighter in the first place? Is it that, that idea that actually this is everyone's history and we need to be talking about it and not just bringing it up every 50, 100 years? Yeah, I mean, I feel really strongly about that, particularly actually in these times. I mean, I wasn't to know that this book was going to come out and collide with all of the things that have been going on in our world recently and just even a couple of days ago. But but there is a terrible legacy from the slave trade, which is to value black lives very differently. And until we actually grapple with our history and realise what's made British cities, British cities, why Glasgow has Virginia Street and what, what the gallery of modern art in Glasgow was built on and why Buchanan Street is Buchanan Street, just, just to name Glasgow as one of the cities, but there's Bristol, mm. there's London, there's Liverpool. We need to actually know that history, um, whether we're black or white, um, because until we actually properly know our, our history, we're going to keep reliving certain aspects of it. You know, William Faulkner said the past is is not past, and I feel that very, very strongly. Toni Morrison said there is more future in the past than there is in the future, which is an interesting idea to get your head around. But <laughs> but the, the, the point is really that until we actually start to become knowledgeable and to know our, our past and to know these things, we, we can't actually really properly move forward. And you can see as a society in, in Britain and in America and around the world that we're stuck at this moment in time in lots of really crucial ways. And I think it's now more important than ever that we start to inform ourselves. And the one thing that gives me hope is that lots of lots of young people, black and white, are feeling the same. Lots of people are going out and creating new reading lists for themselves and are horrified at the kind of things that they just didn't know. Well, actually, it's interesting you mentioning, you know, road names in, in Glasgow there, and, and you mentioned Bristol as well. And it reminds me of that footage of, people toppling the statue in Bristol and throwing Cosden into the into the river there. That's a typical example of, of names of things like Colston Hall in Bristol, a, a very popular music venue, which someone like me wouldn't think twice about it. it. just It's just a name. But actually the history of why <laughs> the name is up there is is important. And I think talking about it a bit more reading books like this is going to make us actually question it and and look further than just oh that's what it's called fine move on you know but actually asking the why and the how yeah I think so I think it's interesting isn't it because there's so much for us to keep on discovering and uncovering uh, as a group of people, white and black, lots of people didn't know Penny Lane. Penny Lane, you just think of as a Beatles song, um, but people don't know that Penny Lane was a slave owner and benefited from the slave trade. It's deeply shocking when you think that mm. and you think of everybody singing along to Penny Lane. You wonder if the Beatles knew. I imagine that they didn't. You hope that they didn't. I don't imagine John Lennon, this, um, who, who, who created Imagine, would actually have known that about Penny Lane. No. So I think that, in a sense... Tony Morrison's thing about there being more future in the past. That's an example of it. Um, going into somewhere like Penny Lane and into that song and then finding out whether what the Beatles knew means that you're getting a sense, you're, you're digging into the past, but you're also actually creating a different alternate future, which isn't to wipe out the past or to pretend it didn't happen or to, to kind of whitewash it, if you like, but it's to be kind of actively and creatively informed about it so as hopefully our, our, our future can actually be different. Yeah. Very much so. And this book was, this play was um, conceived the idea back in 
2007, so about 13 years ago. And Douglas, you started writing this book probably that many years ago, didn't you, originally? Mm -hmm. Yeah, Um, actually, I think I began Shuggy Bean about 12 years ago. And I was actually inspired listening to Jackie there because it made me think of how her history is very dictated by sort of white upper class narratives or people who are in power. And that's how we often understand history. And I grew up in Glasgow, as Jackie did. And Jamaica Street was actually one of my sort of uh, centres of my activities where I would catch the bus to and from school or into the town. And when I read The Lamplighter, it sort of really opened my eyes to things that just taken for granted. But part of also writing Shuggy Bain was about sort of bringing, you know, just really bringing stories to the fore that often get overlooked. Um, It is a story about sort of what it means to live in poverty, what it means to live with addiction, what it means to live under a patriarchy. Um, And sort of in that sort of way, I wanted just to focus in this very sort of post-industrial landscape on the story of a mother and a son uh, who we don't often hear from. Well, tell us um, about Agnes then and... Shuggy, just give us a little, a little window into into this world of nineteen eighties Glasgow. Well, Shuggy Bain is a love story between a mother and son, between Agnes and her youngest son Shuggy. Um, it's set in nineteen eighties Glasgow, when, uh, as a very sort of proud working class city, the city was going through some really terrible unemployment underneath the Thatcher government. I think unemployment went to about twenty six percent for the working class and stayed there for at least a very long time, uh, a generation, I would say. Um, Agnes Bain is a very sort of resourceful, smart, independent, beautiful, a little bit vain working class mother, and she has married the wrong man. Uh, She has married the philandering taxi driver, Big Shug Bain. She's also married across sectarian lines, so as a Catholic woman, she's married a Protestant. And as Shug sort of uh, continues his philandering or starts his philandering all the way across Glasgow, Agnes begins to sink into alcoholism. In a last sort of ditch attempt to save their marriage, Shug moves the family to North Lanarkshire, where Agnes finally thinks she's going to get a front door of her own, is how she sees it, a council house of her own, where she can raise her three kids, but he uses that as an opportunity instead to brutally abandon her uh, in a mining town as the mine is being closed down by by, by the Thatcher government. Um, it is her three children that sort of stay by Agnes's side the longest and try to save their mother from herself, but it's her youngest son, Shuggy, who is really sort of, his mother is the light to his universe, um, who really does everything he can to save his mother. But at the same time as his mother is feeling incredibly isolated in the community, he is also deemed very quickly as being too effeminate, uh, too fussy, and therefore no right and so it's about these two souls that are sort of clinging to each other in tough times. And de- debut authors often, not always, put a bit of themselves in their first books because obviously there's years and years of history and ideas and thoughts and that's what often is channeled into what becomes a, a first novel. Um, so I just wondered how personal this book is to you and, and to your story. Yeah, it's it's. I have to tell you, Joe, it's incredibly personal. Um, I it is a work of fiction, and uh, I should note that. So, but you know, I did grow up poor. I was raised on government benefits, and I am the queer son of a single mother. And I always knew my own mother, suffering from my earliest memories, suffered with alcoholism, and she did eventually lose her life to it when I was in school. 
uh, when I was in high school. And so when I write about sort of poverty or addiction or the exhaustive nature of loving and caring for a parent who is sort of suffering with that, I write about it from the inside or from personal experience. But the book very quickly dwarfed my experience as a single person or as, uh, you know, as a child, uh, as the characters started to sort of rush in and Glasgow itself started to sort of want to push in and be a character in the book. Um, it quickly came out of what I sort of eclipsed what I knew and how I had grown up and became its own thing in a work of fiction. Yeah, it's just a brilliant portrait of, of Glasgow. I find it so alive and so enervating and I, I ju- it, it just took me back to so many things of Glasgow in the in the 80s. But it also sort of, I, I don't know, I find this book just so remarkable and there's so much to, to say about it. We could talk about it for, for hours, but I just love the way that, that the, the mother and son relationship, that kind of... That that terrible love, you know, the, the the agony of that of that love, and and the pride of it, and and um, the glamour of of the love, all of those things you manage to get into that relationship. It's so so complex, and you re- I've rarely come across a mother and son relationship in fiction that's been more finely drawn and more intricately drawn. It just they just kind of fill you with with everything, <laughs> fill your heart. Um, but there's a lot of humor in them too, and just they seem to just get each other they kind of spark off each other um so yeah i just think they're, they're extraordinary characters and glasgow as a city as a theater for them really the whole city is like a mm. theater that plays out this relationship between this mother and son in this in this uh, extraordinary way so yeah it's a thank, thank you for writing it i've just yeah, i've been completely and utterly enthralled Oh, thank you for saying that, Jackie. Uh, that's the biggest compliment, I think. That's from Scotland's Macar. I couldn't ask for a, a bigger compliment. Thank you. Uh, but, um, you know, I think it's it's definitely true. I think because I was, I'm a, the gay son of a single mother, my entire sort of universe as a kid was surrounded by women. And I've always known sort of women to be the strength of Glasgow. I think we think of Glasgow as quite a man's city because of all the heavy industry, shipbuilding, coal, steel. But it's always been the women in my purview or my view that's um, that's really sort of uh, kept the city on its feet and, and done all of that. And Agnes for me was, you know, I grew up in a generation that lost so many mothers to addiction because as we know, there's some terrible health crises in Glasgow and there's some real things that affect life expectancy amongst the poorest citizens. And so myself and a lot of my friends lost their mothers through some just the horrible situations with addiction and social issues. And so I just wanted really to write this as a love story, not only to my own mother, but to mothers across Glasgow and to and to just to show that when men especially suffer, it's women and children that really bear the brunt of it um, and that who suffer worse and who suffer first. But the thing I love about Agnes as a character is she's actually really defiant, even though she's sort of struggling with her addiction and she's struggling with a collapsed marriage. She puts on such a brave face as she goes out into the world. She always has her hair and her makeup done and will not step over the front door without the best gear on or the best clothes. <laughs> and that, I think, also sort of accelerates her sort of isolation within the community. But it's just such, when she started to talk to me, this character, I was so in love with her refusal to be shamed, I think. And just sort of how she, you know, even as she was disintegrating, she would let the world think otherwise. Jack, are you um, influenced in your work from Glasgow as a, as a place that you know and love, obviously. And 
does that sort of influence you as a backdrop to setting poems and, and stories there? Yeah, I've written a lot about Glasgow over the years in all sorts of different ways. And, of course, a lot of The Lamplighter is set in Glasgow, the, the Tobacco Lord mm-hmm. Glasgow, the Virginia Street Glasgow. Um, but there's also a kind of a lot of the, that great gutsy spirit that is Glasgow. I like the fact that Glasgow is a city of many contradictions, that whilst it's a city that became rich through the slave trade, which is kind of horrifying, it's also the city that led the anti-abolitionist movement. Um, you know, whilst Glasgow is a city where you can have the orange orange marches, it's also the city that, that gave Paul Robeson the freedom of the city. And whilst Glasgow is a city that can have racist attacks in it, it's also the city that gave Nelson Mandela freedom of the city. And, and where Nelson Mandela wanted to come first, as soon as he got out of Robben Island, he wanted to actually come and visit Glasgow because he'd had so much support from Glaswegians. Mm. I like the fact that Glasgow is a huge, big open-hearted, complex city. I love its, I love its art, its arch, arch, uh, architecture, and the, 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 its pathos and its glamour. Um, I think that it's just one of those cities that's full of complexity and contradictions, but that people often only know one side to Glasgow. So when people sing, I belong to Glasgow, dear old Glasgow town, there's nothing the matter with Glasgow except it's going round and round. They have one image of Glasgow, and one kind of a Glasgow, uh, whereas in my head I have lots and lots of images of Glasgow because being a Glaswegian, to me, has never been a simple, straightforward fact. I remember being in a pub in London once and going to sit in a chair. This woman said to me, can I sit you in that chair? That's my chair. And I said, oh, right. <laughs> I said, oh, right, you're, you're from Glasgow, aren't you? And she looked me up and down and went, aye, how did you know that? I said, I'm from Glasgow myself. And she went, you're not, are you? You're a foreign-looking bugger. And uh, so that's the kind of reaction that I've had most of my life with other Glaswegians, not necessarily accepting or seeing as Glaswegian it's taken me becoming the macker Scotland's national poet for that not to happen <laughs> it's quite an extreme step you know oh wow. just be, just become the macker and that'll soon sort you out you know so it's a it's, it's quite an interesting thing to belong to your city but not to feel like you belong and in that way I mean Douglas talks about that too because being being a young boy growing up queer in Glasgow is, is also a, 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 an experience where you're kind of on the edge or on the border of things you're not quite allowed to feel like you belong or that you're in the thick of it in the same as in the same way as the so-called quote-unquote hard men so I think we both have that in common that we'd see ourselves as being Glaswegians but with Glaswegians see our see us as being Glaswegians oh so well said absolutely it is isn't it uh, Douglas because I would not not really have thought of it like that and yet it makes complete sense and as you say Jackie just so many similarities between the two of you in terms of you know that growing up there and, and, and feeling a little removed and yet obviously having a sort of a strange bond with it as a as a city and as a as a hometown. Um, and I think that happens, doesn't it? You know, whether we've whether we've had the most amazing time growing up in a place or it's been a bit fraught and it's been troubled and there's something inbuilt about the place we come from. And even Douglas talking to you, you know, the other day about getting these wonderful reviews and and interviews and and press around the book, which is obviously amazing. And yet having your face on the front of the Scotsman probably trumped, (laughs) you know, most of the other (laughs) reviews and and talking to Damien Barr as part of, you know, the Edinburgh Festival is, you know, it's it's bringing it back to to home again, or certainly uh, where, where you grew up. 
Absolutely. And Jackie said it so well, you know, it's my own existence within Glasgow was something I had to fight for. I couldn't be anything but Glaswegian. And anybody that sees me in the world understands me as Glaswegian. But my own sort of place in the city was something that was hard to carve out for myself. And so part of writing the book, and it was actually published in America first, it published in February. And it was so great to see a Scottish story in America and to see how Americans received it. But I was always nervous about its homecoming um, because that's obviously where Shuggy belongs. And, you know, it is a Glaswegian story. It is a love story almost to the city. And so I've spent about four months just being incredibly anxious about it. And when I was, one of the things I was most looking forward to was the Edinburgh Festival. And when that was cancelled and then really miraculously sort of revived as a digital thing, I was so relieved. But, you know, I was just so excited to bring Shuggy home. And I think not only in terms of what it meant for the book, but also what it means for me as an author. You know, I think I've always been trying to find my way home. Mm-hmm. I, th- I think that's that's sort of beautifully put, Douglas, the idea that you've always been trying to find your way home. And I find that very moving because, you know, it's taken you 10 years to write and another two years for the book to come out. So 12 years, a 12-year journey, really, to find your way mm-hmm. home. And I was wondering, you know, whilst you were writing the book over that period of time because you know you go in and out of belief don't you when you're a writer self-doubt <laughs> self-doubt can be crippling and you believe in yourself one minute and then don't the next and and so on but I was just really interested in in that kind of journey that you had with with self-belief to get to actually manage to complete the book in the first place mm. and what that now feels like you know, that's a wonderful question. I went definitely went in and out of self-doubt and self-belief. And I would often write things and then feel very unworthy. Unworthy, first of all, that anyone would want to read the story about poverty and about people struggling. And then just also unworthy about my own background and my relationship to English and academia. Um, because obviously I come from the outside of that. But what I did that sort of kept me on task or kept me believing is I never, ever sat in front of the book and thought this will be a book or this will be something that other people read. Whenever I felt inferior or inadequate, I just thought, well, this is just for me. And so write it exactly as you want it to be seen and create whatever it is you want to do, but do it for yourself. And almost sort of like approaching it with very low expectations stopped me from intimidating myself out of it or being so disappointed with myself as I often was. And so it let me sort of stay with the book over 10 years. And I found that because the characters, because I am Glaswegian, because the characters, I love them deeply, I was rushing to sort of return to them all the time. And even when I was nowhere near, because there would sometimes be weeks or even months where I couldn't sit down and write because I earn my living in another industry. I work in textiles, but I was always thinking about them and they were always with me. And that's what sort of maintained me through the period. Mm-hmm. That's lovely. It's lovely because they are woven, those characters, aren't they? They're woven into you. And you, you kind of weave, oh, thank you. They, they weave their way into the, the reader's heart. So, yeah, t- textiles and your characters go together <laughs> in a strange in a strange way, kind of multi-threaded way. <laughs> <laughs> but actually, I felt, I felt exactly the same way about the lamplighter, you say that, but with the voices of the four women and how they would come in and support each other and sort of show another sort of facet to the, the tapestry, as it were, was just beautiful. It was absolutely some magical writing, Jackie. 
Oh, thank you. Well, I kind of heard them as a piece of music in a way that I like to hear each of mm. their voices at a different, would be a different instrument. If I had to say what, what instrument they would be, I probably could do that if we had longer. But um, but I like <laughs> the, the idea of them kind of working chorally together to create this mm. story that was both an individual story and a collective one. Because uh, it seems to me that that's our lives, really. We have our individual lives. We have our stories and our particulars and our secrets. And, and um, But we also have a, we're also part of a much wider, bigger collective story so I wanted to try and find a way to, to do both with, with, with those characters and they did get they did get under my skin but I think they, they probably it would be interesting to see there's quite a few people wanting to do them as a theatre play at the moment kind of, and I'll, I'll be interested to see them in the theatre in a big theatre and then perhaps to do a, a tour of the theater, of the port cities because I think they, they could make a real impact and that's if theatre survives because we're living in such strange times where everything feels mortal even art forms feel mortal and everything is tentative everything that you would have mm. thought was was possible is not necessarily possible so we have to rethink everything just everything i'd love to think that we could be sat in a theater watching the lamp lighter <laughs> in 2021 though jackie that's that's a that's <laughs> an you. image i'm going to cling you, on to thank you thank you Joel. <laughs> I'll, I'll do that really too so. Let, let's all get aboard that raft <laughs> Quite right. Let's do it. Come on. Let's do it. In, in our pajamas. In our pajamas. <laughs> well, why not? Why not? Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. It's time for the book off now. Uh, this is where each of you is going to tell us about a book that you absolutely love and that you think everyone should read if they haven't already. Uh, you're going to get three minutes each um, to pitch it to us. Before we do that, I've been enjoying asking all my guests what they've been reading recently. Jackie, what's what's been on your bedside table? Well, I've been reading Shuggy, Shuggy Bain. That's what ah, of course. <laughs> and, um, but, but I've also been reading Ali Smith's Summer. Um, which has just been wonderful, part of her four mm. four, four books that, that worked. The final one, yes, isn't it? Yes, the final one. So that's what I've started on now that I've finished Shuggy. 
and um, yeah, and I've been reading a lot of a lot of poetry. I found that reading poetry during these times works sort of very very well with our times. So I've been reading mm. um, J. Barnard's Surge, which is is a phenomenal book. And wh- what about you, Douglas? You've been reading? Yes, I have. Um, I actually just finished a really powerful book called The Young Team by Graham Armstrong, who is another Glaswegian writer. And he writes about sort of territorial gangs and masculinity, both the vulnerability of it and also the power of it and the pressure in it. And that's a beautiful book. Um, and then I read How Much of These Hills is Gold, which is another of the Booker Long listed books by C. Pam Zhang, which is a really stunning book about two sisters of immigrant parents trying to survive in the American West during the sort of the gold prospecting era. And it's a, such an immersive book, so beautifully written. And then a very small book from a um, from an independent publisher called Your Fault. The book is called Your Fault and the author is Andrew Cowan. And it's a really intimate look at a young boy's first memories as his parents' marriages are disintegrating or his parents' marriage. Douglas, you mentioned reading Pam Jang, and gosh, you're in great company there, aren't you, on the book along list. It's a real, real collection of amazing books, which I'm getting through at the moment. Um, But it's time for the book off now. So we need to decide who's going to go first and who's going to go second. And Jackie, you get the choice. Would you like to get it over and done with or do you want Douglas to go first so that you can sit back and see what you're up against? Um, I'll go second, yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, so Douglas, you've been <laughs> you've been put up first, but that means you get to or choose. Um, you have been stitched up, uh, and at, at the three minutes, <laughs> would you like to be uh, honked out by the horn or rung out by the bell? Oh, I think honked out by the horn for me, please. A bit of a honk. Okay, that's no problem. Um, I'm going to put three minutes on the clock just before we start. Can you tell us the book that you're putting forward, please? Yes, I am putting forward The Naked Civil Servant, which is the autobiography of Quentin Crisp. Fantastic. Well, it's over to you then, Douglas, to tell us about that. There's three minutes on the clock. The floor is yours. Uh, So The Naked Civil Servant by Quentin Crisp is a book that means a lot to me personally in many ways. Um, It is the autobiography and one of the reasons why I'm so attracted to this book is when I talk to younger friends, uh, I often find they have no idea who Quentin Crisp is or was. Um, And I think that's a shame because we're living in a time where the queer spectrum is its broadest and Quentin Crisp was certainly a champion for that in a time when it was dangerous to be so. Um, Quentin Crisp, as we know, was um, an Englishman who came into his prime in the 1930s and 1940s. And his autobiography is a really beautiful book. It is often quite witty and funny and sharp, a little acerbic at times, certainly very acute. But underneath all of that, there is so much truth and power and oftentimes a lot of sadness. Um, It really sort of covers his early years um, as a boy growing up in lower middle class England. Um, And what we see in the book is uh, Quentin obviously is a man who would go out and present himself to the world uh, in a very effeminate way. 
from the age of 24, he henna's his hair, he wears wide trousers, and underneath the trousers he wears high heels, and there's a cravat. And he's doing this in a time when uh, to be queer or to be homosexual in England is uh, a crime and you can be put in prison. And also they were still chemically castrating men for it. So it was an incredibly dangerous time to be doing this. But what a what a testament to resistance this is and how defiant it is. Um, but Quentin himself says within the book that he had no choice. He could not be any other way. And that's part of what sort of resonates with me as a gay man, because my entire youth was about concealing myself. And I would do anything I could to sort of uh, to hide myself. And even to the point when Quentin would come on television when I was a young boy, you know, I couldn't f show any interest in him because I felt like it would betray something about myself. Um, and he really sort of came of age when uh, really the only time we saw gay men portrayed in the media was when we were being asked to laugh at them in a way, whether that was Larry Grayson or, uh, you know, Kenneth Williams. And so Quentin is kind of there, but he sort of, he almost refuses to be laughed at. And he is so profoundly himself and so triumphantly sort of accepting of his whole self that it's just a beautiful book. Um, there are many great vignettes, but, you know, part of what he talks about is how he survives on the street. And when he goes out and looks so feminine, um, he was thought of as very aloof or haughty. But he says in the book, actually, my nose was just tilted towards the sky because any time I made eye contact with someone, they looked at me with such hate that the only thing I could do was sort of look up and just keep walking. And he is frequently set upon by crowds where they chase him down the street or they gather around him. And this is not just... Oh, no! <laughs> I had so much more to say. I'm so sorry. Was that three minutes? It's a fix. I knew, uh, I knew you were sort of. I, I felt bad doing it because you were definitely in the in the middle of it there, weren't you? you I, I could tell there was oh, more I was. Coming, but what a brilliant, brilliant pitch! Um, thank you, Douglas. You can take a breather now, and uh, okay. you know, have a couple of minutes to relax. I'm going to put three minutes <laughs> back on the clock now, and it's over to you, Jackie. Um, just before we start the timer, just tell us the book that you're putting forward today. The book I'm putting forward is Their Eyes Were Watching God by Zora Neale Hurston. Fantastic. Um, okay, the floor is yours. Well, before I start telling you about Their Eyes Were Watching God, I'd like to do something very unusual, which is to say that I love the naked civil servant too. And Quentin Crisp died on my street, the street that I live in, Claude Road. He died just three houses down when he was over visiting. No and my partner was going to go and see him in Waterstones in Manchester that night and there was an announcement made that Quentin Crisp had died. Um, so it was really, really an extraordinary thing. But I love Quentin Crisp too because I love his defiance and in that way he reminds me of Agnes Bain. I love his haughty defiance. I love his sense of pride. I love his sense of style. I love the fact that he never bothered to, to, to dust his house and he let dust grow inches, inches and inches thick. And in some ways he shares a lot with the character in this book, Their Eyes Were Watching God, and with Zora Neale Hurston herself, who was a great figure that came out of the Harlem Renaissance. She she was really, really proud. She had a lot of style. She was dependent on really a white benefactor, a white patron, to give her money. She died actually poor. She had no gravestone. It took years um, before Alice Walker went and found her gravestone and put one there in the way that Janis Joplin did to Bessie Smith. And 
Zora Neale Hurston's book was first published around Watching God in 1937 and it was popular for a year or so and then it kind of disappeared and it wasn't until 1973 when Alice Walker rediscovered it in search of our mother's gardens in a sense with, with Zora Neale Hurston being a literary mother that um, that she brought the world's attention back to it and now people do know about there are some people do know about their eyes are watching God it's, it tells the amazing story of Janie Crawford, and it's the first kind of stream of consciousness novel um, that that I that I read, um, and one of the first to exist because we go right inside her consciousness. It's about her developing and burgeoning sexuality. She compares that to pear blossom blossoming, and the beginning of it opens with what people, what women want to forget and what they want to remember, which becomes in a kind of abiding theme through the whole novel. The novel is a quest to find love in the way that just about every novel novel and just about all our lives are about you know what else is there to do except search for love and hope that we'll find it and it's fairy tale in the sense that it takes the third man before she actually does find love tea cake he's 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 the man that really respects her and understands her and is younger than her but gets her he gets her spirit her spirit like Quentin Crisp her sense of defiance her sense of style her attitude and uh, he gets right inside her head and it ends in a terrible tragedy. I don't want to spoil it for, for, for the readers out there because um, it would be just such a pity. But it's kind of unputdownable. It's one of these books that from the minute you start reading it to the minute you finish it, you're, you hardly dare take a breath. And during the way... Oh! <laughs> I have heard this podcast so many times and I haven't understood before how cruel that is until it happens to you. <laughs> Do you know what? I wish that there was a camera on me at the moment that that because every time when when I'm listening to your wonderful pictures and I'm looking at the clock and thinking, oh no, that's I've got to do it. It's t- I've got to do it. My face does this weird sort of contortion, no, not wanting to sort of not wanting to stop you and yet knowing I have to. Oh my goodness! Well done, uh, Jack. And I know was there was fun. there was, a, was another couple of minutes that you could have. Yeah. About this oh yeah. Easily, book. easily. I could have speak. I could speak about that book for an hour. <laughs> <laughs> um, interestingly, I, I didn't know of it until very recently, when it was listed as one of the hundred novels that shaped our world by the BBC. And going through that list, I saw it on there and and read about it and thought, my goodness, this this sounds absolutely amazing and and something that I definitely should read and I am yet to do to come back to you first Douglas though and everything you said about this book oh just really just makes me want to pick it honestly makes me want to go and pick Mm. it up now I love that it's so personal to you that it sort of means a lot I love that he was a champion of who he was you said a lovely line there like refused to be laughed at Mm -hmm. which I think is so important Mm -hmm. and I could tell from hearing you talk about it that that it's obviously a very honest book and that therefore does make it sad. And yet I think we sort of would assume Quentin Crisp is, is quite fun. You know, it would, it would be light and funny as well. Mm-hmm. And this idea that he couldn't be any other way, you know, and, and that so many people just like yourself felt that they had to be um, at a certain time. Absolutely. And an amazing sounding book and, and something that I definitely, definitely want to read. Not being a a Quentin Crisp expert, really. Mm. And then talking of the Zora Neale Hurston, Jackie, and listening to you 
say how it was actually, you know, it was published in 37, but really it, it was sort of not properly popular until later in the 70s when Alice Walker rediscovered it. That whole idea of women wanting to forget and remember the, the unputdownableness of it, if that's even a word, and I just knew that the passion for it, because I could hear it, you know, is, is obviously, it's a very important book to you and... You know, I imagine I could be wrong, but have you have you read these books several times? I, I imagine these yeah. are rereads, are they? Yes, yeah. definitely, definitely, absolutely, lots yeah. of times. What happens here is, as, as Douglas will know, as a, as a listener, which is very kind of him to previous podcasts, is I I tell everyone how wonderful they are, and then I I take a book home with me. I choose a book based on the pitch. But do you know what? I, I try not to do this too often. <laughs> it, today it has to be a draw. Because they were <laughs> they were both so great, the pitches. <laughs> I cut you both down in your prime, <laughs> and these books sound really important and and should be read. So I'm, I'm declaring it. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and, and I won't hear uh, anything else said about <laughs> it. That's the end of the matter. And yeah. Jackie was so gracious <laughs> to give Quentin some of her time. I mean, she actually explained it better than I did. So thank you, Jackie. <laughs> no, no. See, I just thought you had to know that he died in my street. How weird is that? Oh, I mean, what? Wild, yeah, what a world. Yeah. Those books were The Naked Civil Servant by Quentin Crisp and Their Eyes Were Watching God by Zora Neale Hurston. And my guest's books, The Lamplighter by Jackie Kay and Shuggy Bane by Douglas Stewart, are both out now. They're published by Picador. And we wholeheartedly recommend getting a copy of each of these because they deserve a place on your bookshelf and they very much deserve to be read. Um, It's been an absolute pleasure having you on the podcast. Douglas, Jackie, thank you for your time. Thank you for your wonderful words. And thank you for writing these books. We look forward to whatever's next from both of you. Thank Thank you, you. It's been such a pleasure. Really wonderful. Thank you, Joe. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.